We only have one story for you tonight. Now, that is partly because James Fox, our usual producer, is off sick, a very rare occurrence. It's also because there is one story which is dominating above all else right now. Are we looking at a war in Europe? I will be speaking to an expert guest about that in one moment. War is imminent. That's the message we heard again and again over the course of the weekend. And as 12 NATO countries, including the UK and USA, urged their citizens to leave Ukraine, there was a distinct air of inevitability. We encourage all American citizens who remain in Ukraine to depart immediately. We want to be crystal clear on this point. Any American in Ukraine should leave as soon as possible and in any event in the next 24 to 48 hours. We obviously cannot predict the future. We don't know exactly what is going to happen. But the risk is now high enough and the threat is now immediate enough that this is what prudence demands. If you stay, you are assuming risk with no guarantee that there will be any other opportunity to leave and there no prospect of a US military evacuation in the event of a Russian invasion. The force has reached a level where uh, effectively at no notice an attack could be launched. And I think that it's on that basis that we have changed travel advice uh, and we encourage UK citizens uh, in Ukraine to take notice of that and to leave immediately. A big difference between what they may have seen on their TV screens in Afghanistan over the summer and what may happen over the next week or also, uh, and that is that the Royal Air Force will not be in a position to go in and to fly people out. So they need to leave now by commercial means or drive out of Ukraine uh, into a neighboring country, uh, and they should do that immediately. At the same time as those urgent warnings from Western politicians, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has taken quite a different tone. He's urging calm. Panic, he said, is the best friend of our enemies. He also revealed that he had not yet seen any intelligence to suggest an incursion was imminent, saying, we understand all the risks, we understand that they exist. If you or someone else has additional 100% reliable information about the Russian Federation's invasion of Ukraine, please share it with us. What is, of course, clear is that Russian troops are continuing to amass on the country's eastern borders. There are currently many troops on the eastern border of Ukraine, so uh, particularly bordering on, on the Donbass, so those places where there are already independent regions from Ukraine, and you can also see some in Belarus there, so also close to Kiev. Russia's most explicit demand in this standoff is that NATO rule out ever allowing Ukraine to join NATO. And in an interview with the BBC last night, the Ukrainian ambassador to the UK suggested his country would consider compromise on that front. When I asked you if your country would contemplate dropping the goal of NATO, if it, if it stopped war, you answered it might. So is that, a is that something you're now contemplating in order to avoid war, dropping the goal of joining NATO? Thank you for asking it again, because you're right. This is what is written in our constitution. And by, by being ambassador, by saying might, I'm some, some, somehow going just a bit against the major document we have. What I'm saying here that we are flexible trying to find the best, best way out. If, if we have to go through, through some serious, uh, I don't know, concessions, 
that's something we might do. That's, that's for sure. That statement came as a surprise to many, and the ambassador seemed to reverse his position this morning, saying reports of his comments were a misunderstanding. So is war imminent? I'm joined now by Paul Rogers, Emeritus Professor of Peace Studies at Bradford University. Paul's been on the show before. Paul, are you persuaded that Europe stands on the brink of war? I think there's a pretty high risk, I have to say, but it's not there, not there yet. It's very difficult to decipher exactly what's going on, probably more difficult than any time I can remember working for 40 years or so on this kind of issue, uh, because you're getting so many messages mixed from different places. I think the, the reality is that you could actually get a sudden outbreak of war uh, and Russia might basically do what it says it will not do, uh, stage some sort of major incursion. I think myself that at present, what is more likely if we were to, God forbid, go into some sort of conflict, it would be basically, if not by accident, then not involving everybody. In these circumstances where you have a high state of tension, of tension between different states, um, one falls back on an acronym AIM, which stands for AIM, Accidents, Incidents and Mavericks. And I think in this case, one of the things to watch is uh, the fairly small but well-armed, really far-right groups in Ukraine itself, groups like Democratic Axis and the right sector, which basically are against any kind of deal with Moscow, uh, and would even, they claim, fight the Ukraine forces themselves if the government, in a sense, gave way. Those are the kinds of people or the kinds of situations that could actually take you over the edge. But I don't think we're there. And unless the Russians are actually really intent and not going for a bluff, which we can perhaps explore later, uh, then I think we're not there yet. But there is the risk there. And as I say, the problem is there are so many different voices and so many different opinions coming from the different sides that it's actually, frankly, very difficult if you're trying to be an independent analyst to decipher what's really going on and what the chances are. And that idea of what could prompt you know, a more full-blown conflict is a difficult one, isn't it? Because I, I suppose you're suggesting there that there are part of the Ukrainian movements against Russian influence in Ukraine. You know, Lots of that's just democratic forces, people that would feel lots of solidarity towards. There are also sort of far-right sections of that, and you're suggesting yeah. that if, if they were to become, become aggressive in those parts of Ukraine where there, where there are lots of Russian speakers, that could prompt a war. At the same time, we see videos of that, what we're going to hear from the West is that that's a false flag operation from the Russians. So how would we be able to decipher which one we're seeing? It's very difficult to do. And I think this is why it is so difficult to determine what is really going on and, and what is likely to happen. Uh, I think it is those relatively small, really ultra-nationalist far-right groups that are probably a danger at present. But as you say, you're getting all this information coming out from Washington which is basically saying the kinds of things that are being planned. It's, it's something you don't normally get. It's almost as though the Pentagon, obviously in cooperation with the White House, has decided on, on this occasion, it and the intelligence agencies are prepared to open up on some of the intelligence they're getting, which may or not be complete. And as we said, uh, heard earlier on, it was actually Zelensky, the Ukraine president, who was saying that he didn't have enough information to tell. But what seems to be coming out of the United States at present is all these indications about false flag operations, fake flag operations, and the like. And one senses that this is actually perhaps part of a, a kind of a guise from the United States. It's basically saying to the Russians, we have a very good handle intelligence-wise on what's going on. We're sharing some of this selectively, openly, 
both to convince people that you may mean business, but also can convince you that we know what you're doing. But here you're dealing almost with second order complexities, which again, I keep coming back to this, we can't be sure what's going to happen, but it is a dangerous time. One other thing which I think is quite important at this stage is to see the way in which the Ukraines over the last three or four days have brought in the idea of negotiations under the uh, OSCE, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. That's a fairly large organization. It includes many countries, including, of course, Russia and Kazakhstan and Ukraine, and essentially, and also, obviously, Canada and the United States. It started right back at the time of the Helsinki negotiations in the 1970s. It played a pretty important role right at the end of the Cold War and was indirectly involved, I think, in the denuclearization of Ukraine, which is a, a pretty important event. Now, that does have all kinds of mechanisms. They're in what's known as the Vienna Agreement, which is more, more recent, only 2011, for basically easing tensions, observing what's going on and all the rest. The Ukrainians obviously would like to bring that in more. And Russia as a member is in a position to do that. And in some ways, if you find that there are serious discussions involving the OSCE and that the Russia is willing to take part, it may well feel that it's already getting what it wants. So much of this really depends on what it is that Russia and Putin in particular are really after in this whole development. And that takes us into more broader fields. But clearly, there is also the question of whatever they are wanting, if going to war is the way we go, will that ensure that they get it? And I'm bound to say, I think that is pretty unlikely because the quite good arguments when the Russians have gone into Georgia, Crimea, been active in the Donetsk region and the rest, they've been almost very cautious to decide what their real interests were and how far to go. And it may well be that they've taken almost what you might call cruelly a cost-benefit analysis on what they can get out of this and what the risks are to them if they basically go too far, or if indeed there is some sort of uh, provocation coming from the West which affects them directly. But I think you've really got to go back very, very broadly to look at where they're coming from in the first place. And that, of course, takes us right back to the end of the Cold War and what happened in the 1990s. Let's talk about what Putin wants. And we'll sort of prompt this discussion with a clip of Putin describing in his own words and what is motivating him and, and Russia in his view. So Sky's Diane Magny put this question to Putin in Moscow in December last year. You have said, talked a lot about security guarantees, and now we've seen your proposals. You also say you have no intention of invading Ukraine. So will you guarantee unconditionally that you will not invade Ukraine or any other sovereign country? Or does that depend on how negotiations go? And another question, what is it do you think that the West does not understand about Russia or about your intentions? Thank you. Speaking of the security guarantees and what it will depend upon, or if something will depend upon the negotiations, our actions will not depend on the negotiation. They will depend on the unconditional compliance with the Russian security demands today and in the historical context. In this sense, we have made it clear that any further NATO movement to the east is unacceptable. There is nothing unclear about this. We are not deploying our missiles over at the borders of the U.S. No. On the other hand, the U.S. is deploying its missiles close to our home, on there on the porch of our house. So, uh, we 
demanding something excessive. We're simply asking them not to deploy their attack systems over at our home. What is so unusual or peculiar about that? So what would the Americans think if we, for example, decided to come to the border between, say, Canada and the United States or Mexico and simply deploy our missiles over there? We said not an inch to the east. That was the NATO guarantee in 1990. So what became of that? They fooled us. We've seen five waves of NATO expansion. Now they're in Romania and in Poland, and they're deploying the relevant attack systems over there. That's what we're talking about. You should finally understand, we're not threatening anyone. We did not come to the US borders or to the UK borders. No, they, they came to our borders, and now they're saying that Ukraine will also join NATO, and they will deploy their systems there. Or not just NATO, they will their military bases and their attack systems. That's what we're talking about. And you keep demanding some guarantees from us. You must give us the guarantees. It is up to you, and you must do this immediately, right now instead of keep talking about this for decades. So that's Putin's official line. What he's saying is we are you know, amassing these troops because we are concerned about the fact that NATO has, has continued to expand eastward. We're worried for our own security. Other people are saying, you know, potentially that's a red herring. This is actually about economic integration. Another argument is that what Putin is really concerned about is if there was a successful democracy in Ukraine, then that could send a message to people that they could also have an alternative in Russia. Paul, I don't know how you interpret Russia's motivations here. Do you think we should essentially take Putin at his words and what he's worried about is, is the encroachment of, of NATO on Russia's borders? Or do you think there is something else going on here? I think that is certainly a factor, frankly. I think the other ones mentioned, the economic dimension, the integration of much of Eastern Europe, the former near abroad, as the Soviet Union used to call it in Moscow, the integration into the European Union is another factor, quite possibly the, the democracy issue. But I think in a sense, one also has to look at it almost from a political psychology point of view. And the reality is that when the old Soviet Union came apart very ra rapidly in the space of, you know, just a few months back in 1989-90, then essentially, uh, you had the sort of sudden surge of what at the time was called hypercapitalism into what became Russia and Ukraine and the rest. But in, really, in the early 90s and through the 1990s, Russia at that time was treated with contempt by Western countries. It was basically the loser. And I think the, the impact of that was really very deep-seated, particularly among some of the leading political figures. And remember, this is at a time when there hor were horrendous problems within Russia. Um, the life expectancy actually dropped quite strongly. At one stage, something like a third of all Russian citizens were below what was considered to be the poverty line. They climbed out of that eventually, but that period is not forgotten, particularly among the likes of Putin and people of his generation. So there's that element as well. But I, I would agree there are other elements too. And I think the economic side, I mean, from their perspective, and this may be not an entire Russian agreement, a view, it may not be in any way right across Russia among all Russians, but their perception, they were dealt with very badly. Put it very crudely, I mean, we in Britain spent about 40 years losing our empire from the 
basically the partition of India in what, 47, through for the next 40 years. And nearly 40 years later, we still haven't got over it. Uh, Russia lost a far more powerful empire in about 40 weeks, because in a sense, Russia was the heart from the Russian point of view, and obviously the largest part of the Soviet Union. And I think one has to understand that and at least appreciate where they're coming from if you're going to get anywhere. Now, that does not mean, in my view, uh, that what Putin do, does now is to expect a more or less complete climb down by the West and no expansion of, of uh, uh, NATO to the East and all the rest. But he wants something. He wants some sort of restructuring of European security architecture. And uh, this is also complicated by, I think, some other factors. One is also written into this is the Russians seeing the disarray that the United States has been in ever since Afghanistan. I mean, in a sense, the United States and its allies, three wars have failed in the last 20 years, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Libya. And in fact, four, if you count the war against ISIS, which is still going on and is not being completed. And it's really a question of seeing, well, how weak is the United States on this? Is it also much more concerned with what is going on uh, with China? And yet another factor is that Putin now feels that at least temporarily, uh, he has China on his side, a kind of ally, if you like, which might be significant when it comes to the whole issue of economic sanctions, if there is some sort of major conflict. So in a sense, you're trying to tease out a number of different things here. But I would say that we probably don't understand fully just how important the economic side is. Because one always has to remember, it's very easily forgotten, that Russia is not a major economic power. I haven't checked the tables, league tables recently, but on the last look, I think Russia was 12th or 13th on the list of powerful economic countries. Basically, its GDP, I think, is basically less than that of Britain or France, a lot less than, than, than Germany. And compared with the likes of Japan, China or the United States, it's almost nowhere to be seen. Now, fair enough, it has very powerful energy resources, which at present plays to its strength. It also has powerful nuclear forces. There are frankly quite big question marks over how powerful the conventional forces would really be if it came to any kind of war. But in, in other words, the Russians have other questions. And I think the economic side is actually perhaps more important than we think. I'm not an expert in that area, but I think it's something we tend to factor out of rather more than we should. Stephen Calder says, why did NATO break an agreement with Gorbachev in 1991 not to use the end of the Cold War to expand NATO eastwards to the Russian border? We've kind of covered that. Um, I suppose, you know, I don't know if you want to expand on, on that point a bit more, Paul, but I also wanted to bring up a different agreement because for me, you know, if you're, which side has history on their side, right? And on, on the one hand, you have got this, this broken, you know, it wasn't written down, but a verbal agreement where the West said, if the Soviet Union disbands, we're not going to bring NATO troops into Eastern Europe and then into even the former Soviet Union it is now. But then there is another agreement. This one was written down. Um, 1994, Ukraine, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, still had quite a lot of nuclear weapons. The international, well, I hate that phrase, but the international community tried to encourage Ukraine to give up those nuclear weapons. And there was an agreement where the UK, the USA and Russia all said, if you give up these nukes, we will make sure that you are you know, safe within your borders as they currently exist. Now, that agreement in 1994 might suggest that, yeah, actually the UK and the USA have a special responsibility to defend Ukraine's borders, while that verbal agreement in 1991 suggests that, you know, 
there's no way that Ukraine should be in NATO. The West agreed essentially that this was Russia's sphere of influence. So who do you think has history on their side, given the various broken agreements um, that we've seen over the past three decades? Well, let me put it this way. There are certainly issues with, uh, I think it was the Budapest statement they were just talking about. There are issues with that in terms of the security guarantees that appear to be given. They did extend also partly to what the French and the Chinese said as well. They gave a degree of guarantee. The, it's, it's a fairly complex document, not long, but complicated uh, and rather open in, to, in terms of interpretation. But there is a sense in which the Ukrainians could say, why are you not on our side and sending your troops in to defend us against Russia? Because Russia is threatening us. And essentially that is being used pretty strongly. I think the problem is that also the agreement with Gorbachev, yes, it is verbal, but it was very clearly understood at the time as relevant. And as far as Russia is concerned, that was essentially rubbish right through the 1990s. So they will turn around and say, well, since that was rubbish, why do we have to keep to this one? In other words, each side can play against the other. But there is an element there which I think one should acknowledge. There's no, incidentally, I mean, Ukraine was uh, in nuclear power. It was a very powerful state. Uh, the other two states that gave up their nuclear weapons at the same time, Belarus and Kazakhstan, were far less significant in terms of nuclear weapons. Kazakhstan was very important in terms of testing and the rest. The Ukraine was important both in terms of the weapons it had, including ICBMs and long-range bombers, and also its own production capabilities for bombers in particular. So it was quite a big thing when they were persuaded to give up, but it was also at a time when there was huge concern in the West about the security of all nuclear weapons right across the former Soviet Union. So in other words, I'm not saying that there wasn't an issue here, but again, the context was is quite important to understand. And the situation finally is, yes, there is an issue here in which the Ukrainians can say, why aren't you coming to our aid more? But the Russians would turn around to say, well, you treated us like dirt for the best part of a decade. Uh, why should we obey anything? <laughs> That's very piffily put, in fact. No one's coming out looking particularly rosy here. Let's look at what the Western powers are saying right now, because there are subtle differences between them. Actually, we're just going to look at the European ones um, right now. So Germany has strong economic relations with Russia, especially in terms of gas. They've been unwilling to send weapons to Ukraine. I think they've sent some helmets. They're also under pressure to cancel Nord Stream 2. So that's the, the gas pipeline going from Russia to Germany would massively increase the amount that can be exported. Um, French President Emmanuel Macron also taking a slightly softer line. He's been emphasizing the importance of diplomacy. And he spoke to the press last week in Ukraine. But the question that underlies all this is the question of the collective security of measures of uh, transparency and de-escalation in the whole region. This question can't be boiled down to NATO and its uh, expansion. The question touches on many other topics uh, and various uh, um, measures of trust. And these are, this is a conversation that we had with that I had with President Putin. And he stated that we have to continue the dialogue. And we had exchanges yesterday, and we also had very rich exchanges today with the Ukrainian president on the ways and the means of being able to uh, ensure the, 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 that our values are respected. As for the more security and military issues, I very specifically said yesterday, we had exchanges with uh, President Putin, and he said that he would not trigger an escalation. 
I think this is something that is important. Britain, in contrast, has been comparatively hawkish. Here's the Prime Minister speaking in the House of Commons on the 25th of January. This winter we've witnessed a spectacle that we hope to be banished from our continent. A large and powerful country, massing troops and tanks on the border of a neighbour with the obvious threat of invading. Russia has, of course, already attacked Ukraine, illegally annexing 10,000 square miles of her territory in 2014, igniting a war in the Donbass region, and Ukraine has scarcely known a day of peace ever since. Now Ukraine faces the danger of a renewed invasion, and this time the force arrayed on Ukraine's frontier comprises over 100,000 troops, far bigger than anything Russia has deployed against her before. If the worst happens and the destructive firepower of the, of the Russian army were to engulf Ukraine's towns and cities, I shudder to contemplate the tragedy that would ensue. Ukrainians have every moral and legal right to defend their country, and I believe their resistance would be dogged and tenacious, and the bloodshed comparable to the first war in Chechnya or Bosnia, Mr. Speaker, or any other conflict that Europe has endured since 1945. No one would gain from such a catastrophe. Russia would create a wasteland in a country which, as she continuously reminds us, is composed of fellow Slavs, and Russia would never be able to call it peace. That was Boris Johnson really amping up the prospects of an incredibly bloody war. He's not the only one in government to be using rhetoric such as this. This weekend, Defence Secretary Ben Wallace compared the handling of Russia to appeasement. So he said, it may be that he, Putin, just switches off his tanks and we all go home, but there is a whiff of Munich in the air from some in the West. Today, Armed Forces Minister James Heapy went on Sky to say this. We are beyond the time where I'm advising people to register on a website. I'm being very, very clear to people that they should leave Ukraine now whilst there are the commercial means to do so and whilst the motorways are available for them to drive out over the border. This isn't uh, a, a warning about something that could happen in three months' time. This isn't a warning that will be followed by further warnings because greater imminence has been, uh, has been reached. This is a warning because minutes after Putin gives the order, missiles and bombs could be landing on Ukrainian cities. And that means British citizens should leave now whilst they have the opportunity to do so. Bombs raining down in minutes. That does remind me of the build-up to a different conflict. Paul, could you, let's focus on Europe for now. Why are Britain, France and Germany all sounding so different when it comes to their interpretation of, of what the tensions in Ukraine and Russia mean and what, what we might be about to see next? I think there's a, probably a long-term and a short-term answer to this. In the long term, France, Germany and Britain have really approached this, reproached relations with Russia rather differently. And Britain has tended to be the most hawkish, particularly over the last four or five years, and Germany basically the more most cautious and almost sort of statesperson-like. I think there's a compliment, and of course Macron in, in a sense and France is somewhere in between. I think at present you have domestic politics intruding, obviously with essentially with Olaf Scholz, who's only recently come to the chancellorship, 
and it is a coalition government which is quite a complex one still feeling its way i think this is probably affecting the caution which he is demonstrating at the present time although he made a pretty worried statement today which i think is slightly ominous Macron, of course has an election coming up pretty soon and essentially he was pushing very much the idea that he could ensure that the talking continued and going off to moscow in the way that he did i think was uh, part of that election process as far as johnson is concerned this also comes down very much i think to british domestic politics in that the conservative party under johnson has moved i think a fair bit to the right in many ways and there are elements within it which really they're almost like the, you know the league of empire loyalists when i was growing up sort of 50 or so years ago they really do hanker after the idea of britain is one of the world's great countries you know when i was a kid there was this idea that there were three superpowers britain the united states and the soviet union and that okay i say my age that was in the 1950s but in a sense there's almost if there's a whiff of munich then there's a whiff of that as well of course to add to that is johnson's current problems and this quite apart from anything else is a very significant diversion from that that in a sense makes it rather more dangerous in terms of the position we're at it also means that you could say that in a way nato does have some pretty strong divisions within it and that of course is something which mr putin himself will find useful in his own manipulations and negotiations he will see the possibility of sort of finding out chinks of the armor if you sort of put that question again do i think there's going to be a war in terms of russia invading ukraine it is possible i don't think you can rule it out i don't think that is what putin is about i think he wants to really move it move the whole thing in a direction which it means that russia has to be taken much more seriously as a very major security partner in europe as crude as that almost repairing what he say, sees is the sort of the affront to russia going back to the 1990s i could be wrong on that but i think that's that's a major point whereas i think in terms of germany france and britain as we've just gone through domestic politics rears very large in that and in the case of britain i have to say i think it's rather embarrassingly so because it is so similar well it's similar to the rhetoric that came out after 9-11 which is much more understandable but also to the blair pronouncements in the winter of 2002-2003 and i think that it, it complicates matters unnervingly and certainly you know going through the british press day by day some of the stuff that's coming out is quite extraordinary it really is as i say we're, we're going to park the media because we've got some good examples of that to, to go through in a moment we've gone through some of the european powers the obvious other two countries to talk about are the usa and china could you talk about both of their role in this. I think there's been some ambiguity, especially with the United States, if they're being quite as hawkish as the United Kingdom, or if they're actually more towards Germany and, in, and France on this one. Biden obviously said, well, if it's just a minor incursion, we're obviously not going to go to war with Russia. Then there was a lot of pushback in America against him having you know, what seemed like a fairly reasonable statement. So where does America stand? Where does China stand? Let's look at China first, which is briefer. I mean, China <coughs> is watching with interest all that is happening here and indeed what has happened in the position of the United States after the last year. They probably, in terms of the latter and the rapid retreat, the defeat in Afghanistan, they probably can't believe their luck. I think China essentially is giving the indication that it sees Russia's point, but China very much plays it its own way. It's interesting to note that China has been doing some other things which tend not to be noticed. China, Russia and Iran 
did some joint naval exercises recently. Now, I don't think that has happened before. It's indicated that China, bit by bit, is pushing towards the military side. Most of its operations in other parts of the world have been much more on the economic side in Latin America and across Africa as well. But that's an indication also that it's pushing things a little bit more. So for the Chinese, they certainly would not want a war because who knows where that would end. And there would be a real risk of escalation. But at the same time, they're sort of rather calmly and quietly saying, as far as Russia is concerned, we see where you're coming from. Biden, I think, is, is far more difficult to understand. As far as one can see, um, the Biden administration, there are two things to remember. Biden has always been cautious, uh, relatively, as far as American politicians are concerned, in the United States getting involved in wars overseas. Okay, the United States has forces all the way around the world. It has training groups probably in about 130 countries. But in terms of major involvements in overseas wars, Biden has been relatively cautious in the past. At the same time, I think he and his administration uh, have all this problem of coming to terms with how badly things went wrong, wrong in Afghanistan. And in a sense, I think the kind of rhetoric you're getting from Biden and the sort of almost the scaring that you get, not at the level of Johnson and the others, but not far short of that in some ways, is really to make it absolutely clear to Russia that because America made such a mess of it in Afghanistan, uh, it is basically sticking together on this one and will play a more significant leadership role. One of the problems I think Putin has on the other side is that if he was expecting that essentially his tactics would really divide NATO, that hasn't happened to the level you would expect. Because frankly, one has to say it, uh, Britain is not counted as significant. It, it is basically discounted in this whole affair. The kind of rhetoric that comes out of London, some of the things that Liz Truss said and the rest, uh, Britain is no longer taken seriously. It's tended to see as something as a joke. But Biden, I think, is rather different. And what is we're seeing there is a degree of expression of power, which he probably feels he has to do because of the experience in Afghanistan. Ian Smith says, in the case of invasion, surely Kiev is less likely to be a target, but rather the ethnic Russian majority regions in the East, or is this optimistic? That's certainly sort of how I'm reading this at the moment. If there is an invasion, I think it will be in those majority Russian-speaking regions, not as Keir Starmer wrote in The Guardian, Russia is on the verge of annexing Ukraine. I mean, where do you, where do you stand on this? If there is war, what will be, you know, what, what will be the regions? What will be the battlefield? think that is more likely. Um, there may be uh, sort of some sort of move towards Odessa from the sea, but I don't think it will be an all-out all war and occupation. But, you know, this conversation we're having tonight, Michael, I'm conscious of the fact that, you know, the answer to so many of the questions is, I don't know. Uh, we're trying to work out what is going on, and it's easy to jump to conclusions. And I've been involved in this kind of analysis moves to war for most of my life. And this is one where it is far less easy to say with any certainty what is going to happen. Uh, so maybe that's, that's an excuse on my part. But no, I would agree, tend to agree with that, that essentially it is more likely to be something really far short of wholesale occupation, if indeed Putin will even go that far. This is a really good question. Over on Twitch, Iconoclasm. I feel Putin's suffering from the sunk cost fallacy now. A lot of work has gone into this endgame and things haven't worked out as he hoped. Europe and NATO are still extant. The US doesn't have Trump in charge. Germany are prepared to shut down Nord Stream 2. And I think that's a super interesting point. Is 
Is it the case that actually this is looking like it could backfire on Putin, especially this issue of Germany now suggesting if there is an invasion, they'll shut down Nord Stream 2. But Putin's in a situation where like, well, I've gone this far. I've got to follow through, whatever the consequences. It's a, it's a really good question. The one thing you could say is if Putin, what really Putin wanted was to be taken absolutely seriously and put Russia right at the forefront, then he's already succeeded. The BBC um, Moscow correspondent, Steve, what's his name, was actually saying on the early bulletins this morning that in a sense, the Russians had already, to an extent, got what they wanted. And they're going to be taken far more seriously from now on. And it's quite possible that we won't move to a war. It won't happen by accident. The troops will not all go back, but quite a few of them will. And in fact, this game that Putin is playing is going to continue for months or even years which doesn't bear thinking about it in another way. It's a bloody sight better than going to war. So, yes, I, I think it has not gone exactly as Putin expected. But again, that's almost a guess. But from that, there is a possibility that you could get a compromise, uh, which is why I think in a sense, Sergei Lavrov's comment earlier today that there is still plenty of talking to be done might be an indicator of where they're really coming from just at the moment. Maybe I'm being a bit too optimistic there, though. Got another great question. This is over on Twitch from Bobby Firmino86. Devil's advocate question. Does Paul think Zelensky, so that's the Ukrainian president, has any other option than to play down the threat? If he stated that conflict was likely, would this not cause a panic in Ukraine that he obviously wants to avoid? So, you know, is it the case that Zelensky actually does think war is probably imminent, but just doesn't want to admit it because it would cause a run on the currency and, and all sorts of consequences he might not like? That is certainly possible. In fact, just before we came on air, I caught something in one of the bulletins that, in fact, Zelensky had made a much more pessimistic statement this evening. I don't know whether it was widely picked up. Um, but yes, that, again, is another possibility, and it's a further complication. But at the same time, you know, Ukraines are far closer, the, the non-Russian Ukraines are far closer to this situation than people like we are. Uh, and there is not the great, the general sense in Ukraine, and most of the Western correspondents will actually share this view. There is not the general sense that war is inevitable, that Russia will never even move that far. So in a sense, though, from the point of view, in answer to the last question, it may not be going quite right for Russia. But whatever happens, it is not a good position for Ukraine to be in. I certainly agree with that. In these circumstances, I always look back on that pacifist question. If war is the answer, it's a bloody stupid question. Very well said. Now we are going to go on to the media question because there is an awful lot to talk about there. There is nothing the corporate media loves more than a war, especially when they can paint it as a Manichaean conflict between good and evil. The good side, of course, always being us. Putin, of course, is pretty easy to paint as a villain. He doesn't make it hard. And now, with tensions building between Russia and Ukraine, many mainstream outlets seem to be gagging for shots to be fired. On Friday, PBS's defence correspondent Nick Schifrin issued a series of reports saying, New, the US believes Russian President Vladimir Putin has decided to invade Ukraine and has communicated that decision to the Russian military. Free Western and defense officials tell me. The US expects the invasion to begin next week. Six US and Western officials... Six US and Western officials tell me, as Secretary of State Antony Blinken said last night. Then he goes on, US officials anticipate a horrific, bloody campaign that begins with two days of aerial bombardment and electronic warfare, followed by an invasion with the possible goal of regime change. 
Now that thread got over 20,000 retweets, went very far. You know, understandably, you know, very dramatic what he is suggesting there, that Putin has decided to invade Ukraine. However, then less than an hour later, Schifrin had to roll back on that report. So he tweeted, asked about my earlier reporting, Jake Sullivan says the US has not concluded that Putin gave the order to invade. I would presume that at times like this, the international media ought to be a little more careful in its reporting, especially as, you know, reports like that could influence actual events on the ground. But war sells, he got a lot of retweets. So, you know, if, that, if that's what you're looking for, went pretty well. We can also look at some breathless headlines in the UK. This was the mirror. They went with countdown to war, big picture of a tank. The Daily Mail went with frantic 48 hours to save Europe from a war. And the Times leaders in final push to avert Ukraine invasion. The Times front page, though, is, is less interesting because of the headline or because of anything you know, written in that article, but more for the image. It's of 79-year-old Valentina Konstantinovska, a Ukrainian pensioner who is now learning to use a rifle in order to, as she says, defend her home if necessary. Clips of her training have been widely circulated on many mainstream media outlets. We're going to show you how NBC reported it in a minute. But while you watch, I want you to look out for this. So this is the symbol on the soldier's uniform. And it's the, the insignia of the Azov Battalion, a National Guard unit of Ukraine, which has been identified as neo-Nazi. That's by a number of international organizations, including the FBI. Some communities are taking matters into their own hands. Just across from Russia, in the city of Mariupol, some Ukrainians are preparing. Basic training for the whole family, learning first aid to treat gunshot and shrapnel wounds, and weapons training. On a 7.62 caliber AK-47 is Valentina Konstantinovskaya. The 79-year-old is a retired accountant and a great-grandmother. You're about my mother's age, and I can't picture my mother laying down on the concrete learning how to fire an assault rifle. Do you think you would actually be doing this? Yes, if Putin comes, I should be able to shoot. The threat is very serious, she says, and I think every person in our country should be able to shoot from the window or on the street if the enemy comes. So it's reported as a cute grandma is out to defend her country. Now, we don't know anything about this 79-year-old, but it seems like that training involved quite a lot of people in a neo-Nazi organization. And it gets worse because it turns out that the neo-Nazi Azov unit seemed to have organized that event as essentially a press stunt, as a photo shoot. And the Western media fell for it. As Mark Ames from Radio War Nerd put it, amazing. Check media reporting that Granny Valentina's photo op was organized by the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion, meaning a bona fide Nazi propaganda tool is the darling of the Angloid media elites, truly the face of Ukrainian resistance. Paul Rogers, how would you assess the media coverage of tensions between Russia and Ukraine? Do you think they are sort of getting ahead of themselves in sort of saying war is imminent? And are they being played by some quite unsavory forces in this conflict? I've no doubt that that is part of the picture. There's a huge amount of propaganda going on. Also, I think there's quite a lot of sloppy reporting. We've constantly been told that first 100,000, then 130,000 Russians 
troops were on the borders ready to cross into Ukraine. But in fact, even the figures and maps and things that come out from official sources don't suggest that. I mean, the BBC one basically does mention, it does show on its map, the uh, forces that are routinely based in particular parts of southwest Russia, including Crimea over the last two or three years. It's difficult to say exactly how many they were, but they come to many tens of thousands are routinely based. One of the biggest uh, regular army camps is actually between Belarus and Moscow, and it's not that far from Ukraine. And that appears on some of the maps. The BBC, at least on that occasion, but nobody's really addressed it. In fact, the idea that you know everybody is poised to go right over the border seems to be far from the truth. Now, it may be that you can bring the forward fit pretty quickly, but again, it's a kind of upping the ante. But I think this is a problem for defence reporting right across the Western world in that defence journalists in particular are very dependent on the military and the military sources. You get very few exceptions to that. I think Richard Norton Taylor, when he worked for The Guardian, was one of those. And some of the stuff he's putting in Declassified UK at present is really extremely good. Probably the kind of stuff that he wouldn't have got into, into The Guardian when he was their security correspondent. You also see that little bits and pieces come through the good old private eye, stuff which clearly a defence correspondent would come across but couldn't get into his own or her own paper. So you have that element in that the the military really, to some extent, have a very relatively easy ride with defence journalists, more so than some other fields. And this is one of the ways in which at present, if the government wants to up the ante, then it has the friends and the media to do it, particularly when it comes to military things. So that doesn't help us very much. It is also true, I'm bound to say, the United States as well, because it does bring the other issue in, we probably don't have time to discuss, in that any kind of war or arming for war or build up to war is extremely good for the military industrial complexes of the world, the various ones in the larger countries. I mean, this really is, you know, Henry V, uh, what is it, um, Act Two, prologue, now thrive the armourers. And essentially all being seen that in some ways, the salespeople for the different weapon systems will be very happy at what's happening. I've no doubt that the company in Russia, which makes the S-400, which is a very effective longer range anti-aircraft missile, will be hoping basically that that is used effectively against an American aircraft because it will do the sales potential across the global south no end of good. I'm not being cynical here. I think this is reality. It's how the system works. But it's an added factor because obviously in any country, whether it's China, Russia, the United States, France or Britain, the military industrial complexes have to succeed. And part of their success is if not fighting winning wars, at least preparing for the threats. And in that sense, I have to say, escalating the threats from time to time. And you've seen that repeatedly over the last 40, 50 years. The relationship between sort of arms firms and the media is incredibly important, often quite direct. I keep seeing screenshots of, of people showing Politico articles where it says this, this piece of journalism was sponsored by Lockheed Martin, which doesn't seem like a particularly good idea. Do you think anything has changed since Iraq on this? Because obviously there was a moment, I think, where there was this, this moment of self-reflection oh, we didn't perform very well then. You know, we, speaking as the, as the corporate media, we swallowed all of the information we were given from intelligence sources. I think the, the New York Times ended up having to apologize because they said we were too unquestioning in how we reported on all of this. Do you think that self-reflexiveness has been sort of immediately abandoned and, and forgotten and we're back exactly where we were in, in 2003 and during the war on terror? 
I don't think it's in, immediately been forgotten. I think it's been progressively forgotten over the last um, 15 years. Immediately, in some respects, it's quite extraordinary the way that you had this utter disaster as far as Afghanistan was concerned. I mean, about as bad a defeat as you could expect when the Taliban took over so quickly. But, you know, within just a few weeks, as far as the military were concerned, it was all about China and the risk of a new Cold War. It's quite extraordinary how one replaced the other very quickly. Going back to the earlier point, I mean, as I say, I've been working in this field for quite a long time. I can remember some quite senior, very experienced journalists working for major newspapers or broadcast media who basically then took jobs with the military, with NATO and the like, or with arms companies. And one of them I remember talking to, he joined, I think it was BAE Systems. He said, well, one of the things is I can get decent pay in this. And I got to put my kids through school. It's as crude as that. But essentially, you will get this very strong connection across the media, which, of course, from the perspective of an arms company, as any major country, is part of the name of the game. And it's as true for other areas of activity, whether it's health, education, or the rest, as it is for the defense. But I think particularly for the military, because you're dealing with areas where basically, if you're going to increase the sales potential, you have to increase the nature of the challenge of the possible risk of war, because that, that really works really beautifully in terms of ensuring that the defense budgets stay high. Let's wrap up there. We've covered so much ground. Paul Rogers, thank you so much for staying with us for a whole show um, this evening. We really do appreciate it. Very sober analysis of what's going on, as always. Thank you, everyone, for watching tonight. Your super insightful comments and questions today. Really appreciate all of those. If you do want to continue supporting Navarra Media, please go to navarramedia.com forward slash support. We will be back on Wednesday at 7 p.m. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navarramedia.com slash support.